Well, good morning, everyone. It's fantastic to be with all of you this morning as we continue uh, our journey following the uh, incredible unfolding story of the early New Testament church as they begin to live out and recognize what it means to live life now that Jesus has come to planet earth and, and has done his great work of redemption. And so uh, we have been following the story of the gospel, moving through the people of God, uh, through uh, cultural barriers, language barriers, geographical barriers, and, and doing exactly what Jesus said it would, like a mustard plant invading the darkness, moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth as it uh, works its way. So we've been following that story uh, through the many different people we've bumped into. And most recently, as you know, if you've been around, uh, we have been traveling with a man named Paul, and he's gone on already two great church planting journeys, great missionary journeys, where he's traveled through the world that has not yet experienced the great news of the gospel, brings them the gospel, and then establishes disciples and plants churches in those regions. We were with Paul in Corinth at the end of his second great missionary journey. We went with him from Corinth to Ephesus. He took Priscilla and Aquila with him. He left them in Ephesus and headed up to Antioch where he was sent out on that second missionary journey. And then uh, we found him in Galatia and Pergia, strengthening disciples there. And if you remember, Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, writing to Theophilus, kind of transported us back away from Paul, back to Ephesus, and said, while Paul's in Galatia, back here in Ephesus, a man named Apollos came. And we remember that Apollos had learned of Jesus, had a passion for Jesus, but had not learned about the death and resurrection of Jesus yet. And so uh, he knew what John the Baptist had taught. He knew the gospel in part, but not in full. Priscilla and Aquila, when hearing this and seeing his passion, uh, brought the rest of the gospel to him about Jesus' great work. And Apollos has headed now off to Corinth uh, as a Christ follower with a full gospel. And we had this beautiful vision of the two chapters of the story of God, the, the Old Testament chapter preparing us for the coming Messiah, and then the coming Messiah himself showing up in the Gospels, and then the new chapter in which we still live, life now that we know Jesus, right? So, uh, so the distinction between the two worlds, we caught that in Apollos' story. Luke is now going to transport us back to Galatia and Pergia, where Paul is. So we got a lot going on in our heads geographically, right? Apollos has gone to Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila are still in Ephesus. Paul is in Galatia. And we've jumped back between those three. We're jumping from Apollos in Corinth now to Paul in Galatia. So uh, hopefully you're on track now with me geographically. We're in Galatia. Let's jump into the story and pick it up and see where Paul now goes as he launches into his third great missionary journey. We're going to turn to the book of Acts chapter 19. So if you're, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's page 603, 603. If you brought a smart device or one of your own Bibles, go to uh, uh, Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we begin in verse 1. So here's what it says. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So we'll stop right there because that kind of brings us back to the story now. I just told you we went from Corinth where we left Apollos in the last story, bounced back to Galatia where Paul is, but now suddenly we're in Ephesus again with Paul. So let me, let me tell you what just happened, okay? Okay. 
Paul left Antioch, which is where he was sent from, went into Galatia and Pergia to strengthen the disciples. What this verse tells us here is that once Apollos got to Corinth and was in Corinth, Paul then made his way back to Ephesus, except this time, instead of going back to Antioch and traveling across the Mediterranean Sea to Ephesus the way that he initially came back to Antioch, he is taking the inland route, which is the road he took the first time on that second, second missionary journey because he wanted to go to, into, South, uh, into Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus is. But remember, the Spirit of God prevented him, which is what got him ending up in Macedonia. What's happened this time is he's taking the mountainous route uh, along the, 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 the western route coming down into Ephesus. Now you also remember if you've been around, Paul when he was in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila said to the guys there, they said, please stay. And he said, I plan to return soon if God wills it. And we talked then about the idea that sometimes God changes our plans, but we ought to have a plan. Well, it turns out Paul's plan to return to Ephesus worked out exactly the way Paul had intended. So just a quick note here, God does not always change your plans, okay? Don't be afraid that every time you make plans, God's going to change them. That's not how he works. A lot of times, the plans you make with the gospel in mind actually pan out the way you make them. So that's good news. So Paul gets back to Ephesus. So where are we now? We have left Galatia and Pergia, headed west, back down to, into Asia Minor. We're sitting on the Mediterranean Sea, and we're in Ephesus now with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, and Apollos is in Corinth across the Aegean Sea uh, back in uh, the southern Macedonian area. Now let's take a look at what happens when Paul gets back to Ephesus. And it says this, verse 2, uh, still, still verse 1, there he found some disciples. There it is. He found some disciples. So we are not uh, told what kind of disciples these were yet. It's left general. We'll find out in a minute how that plays out. But the reason I think Luke leaves this general is because he's setting the pace for Paul's conversation that's about to unfold. When Paul first encounters these guys, the assumption Paul makes is that these guys are disciples. And we would generally use the term disciples for those who are following Jesus. Okay? So Let's look at what the next line says. It says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay, let me clarify something here real quick about the way that Luke writes this book. Sometimes I think we read these things as though the conversation took place exactly this way. Have you ever heard of somebody walking into a group of strangers on a road or at a coffee shop that they perceive are disciples and starting a conversation this way? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Nobody does that. Nobody does that, okay? That's awkward. It's weird. You don't do that. That statement comes out of you once you have initiated conversation and maybe there's some clarification needed because you've heard some things. If Luke wrote down for us every detail of every conversation that took place around the gospel, we would have 19 volumes thicker than this just of the book of Acts. And you people don't even read this one, which is the summary version. So there's no way you would read this if there were 19 volumes of just the book of Acts. So you need to remember that in many cases, uh, the authors of Scripture 
are extracting out of an entire event or, or conversation the key parts that we need to know to know how the conversation unfolded so that we can focus on that. We need to fill in the blanks and say, obviously, Paul didn't walk into a stranger camp with 12 guys and go, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Here's what happened. Paul assumes these guys are disciples, obviously, of Jesus. Why? Probably because they were conversing about the Messiah. Why else would Paul go, oh, sweet, a bunch of disciples? They're talking about Jesus, uh, but probably not Jesus-specific, just the Messiah, and how excited they are of the Messiah, and how since their baptism, it's been so amazing to have this anticipation for the Messiah. And so Paul is assuming you got baptism in there, you got Messiah in there, these are disciples. He gets in conversation with them, and as he's talking, obviously, as he's listening to them, he realizes that they're saying some right things, but there's some things that just don't seem to play into the fullness of the gospel. So in the conversation, he says, guys, can we stop for a second here? Before we carry on talking about the Messiah, when you received the baptism and you came to Christ, did you receive the Holy Spirit too? Why would Paul be asking that? Because the confirmation of stepping into a life with Jesus was also the receiving of the power that Jesus gives us, which is God in us, the Holy Spirit. And so Paul just says, you you did get the Spirit when you received Jesus, right? To which the guys say the following. And they said, "Uh, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, Ding, 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 ding. See, this is where in the conversation, that aha moment. Oh, oh, gosh, and here I was. I thought you guys were like disciples of Jesus already, but clearly you are super excited about the Messiah, but you don't know the whole story. And so Paul says to them this. He now wants to clarify. And he said, into what then were you baptized? You see, Paul's assumption here is if you've never heard of the Spirit, if you don't have the Spirit, then clearly you were not baptized into Christ. So I'm just curious, when you were talking about baptism and the Messiah, which baptism were you talking about? And the guys go, and they said, into John's baptism, of course. Into John's baptism. Ah, now it's all becoming clear to us. You see, when the Spirit of God prompted Luke to make this particular moment in time in Ephesus. And imagine all the stories that happened with Paul in Galatia and Pergia and then on the road to Ephesus and then even in Ephesus. And why would you think Luke, prompted by the Spirit, focuses on this particular story right after we have just spent time with Apollos? What was Apollos' story? He came up to Ephesus. He was passionate about Jesus. He wanted to share about the Messiah, but he did not know yet that Jesus had died and resurrected and that uh, the gospel was actually the rescue of Saul. He still only had John's baptism. So in the last story, Luke, for, for Theophilus, who he's writing to as well as for us, is saying, remember, there were two great chapters in the story of God, the chapter of preparation, the Old Testament, and then the chapter that Jesus has now come, here's what life looks like, and a Apollos had the chapter on the preparation down, and he had heard that the Messiah had come, but he had not heard how the Messiah was going to play out in terms of his great work of redemption. So once he heard that from Priscilla and Aquila, received the whole full gospel, he was super excited and went up to Corinth to go and preach the gospel. He came to know Jesus. 
Now, the immediate story that follows this, it is no coincidence then that Luke decides, let's focus in on this continued track so I can show you the great transition that's taking place here. So they say we were disciples of John, baptized by John. That's why we're excited about the coming Messiah. That's why we're talking about it. So Paul goes, oh, oh, I got a story for you. Take a look at this. And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. See what, what Paul's saying? Oh, when you were baptized into John's baptism, while John was baptizing before Jesus appeared to John, and John said, behold, the Lamb of God is here, what was John telling you? He was saying to you, prepare the way because the Messiah is coming soon. That's the baptism you were baptized into? That's an awesome baptism. Baptism of repentance. Baptism of preparation. But I've got great news for you. The Messiah John said was going to come that you guys were just conversing about, being excited about. He came. He came. John knows it too. Were you there when John said, behold, the Lamb of God has come? No, we'd already left for Ephesus by then. We left Palestine after John was baptizing. See, because remember, John was baptizing for quite a while. Many who traveled for John's baptism long before John even recognized Christ coming down the road and saying, here comes the Messiah. So many will have stepped into the baptism of John and then left and never heard that even John had said the Messiah has come. So Paul says, listen, the guy that John baptized you to prepare to come, his name is Jesus. He came, look, he says it right there, who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now, again, we're in the Luke summary here, okay? On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so just again, to be clear, this is not how it went down, okay? Oh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance about the one to come, that is Jesus. Jesus! Yes, baptize us right now. There was an entire conversation that took place. I have no doubt Paul sat down and said, oh my gosh, let me show you the Old Testament and all, you know, the prophecies and all that. And then I was on the road to Damascus and then he showed up and then I was here and then we went to Galatia. Oh, I've got to tell you about Lydia. Lydia, she was awesome. She's in Macedonia. We were there last and then this. And then, and then that's why John said this. And did you know that John actually said, behold the Lamb of God, this is Jesus, and there was a baptism? You didn't hear about that? Oh my gosh, it was so cool. I wasn't there either, but I wish I was. And then there was, and so the whole story unfolds, and then these guys are like, wow, yes, that is the Messiah. And so they are baptized into the name of Jesus, the baptism that is not John's baptism, but the baptism of Christ. And so you would think the story would end there, and we'd go, oh, what a beautiful story. But then this super weird thing happens. Right here, take a look. It says this. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 then in, uh, men in all. So, okay, so, so here's what happens, right? <laughs> it's kind of weird. They come to know Jesus. They're baptized into his name. And then apparently in this case, after they come to know Jesus, at that moment, Paul says, come over here. Remember the Holy Spirit we just talked about that I asked if you'd been baptized, uh, that you received, when, when you were baptized, you received the Holy Spirit and you didn't? C come over here. Lays hands on them. Goes, God, give them the Holy Spirit. Let them have them. 
And he comes down, and immediately there was an outward expression of the receiving of the Holy Spirit in this supernatural gift of tongues and prophesying. They suddenly started speaking languages they didn't know and started prophesying truths they didn't know. And so you're like, whoa, what just happened? And if you're sitting here in 2015, and you know Jesus as Savior, and you've been baptized into the story of Christ, you, you, know, you know Him as your Savior, you ought to be asking in this moment, was there a step I missed? If you've never had someone lay hands on you, pray over you, and then this fire come down from heaven, and you start speaking out in crazy languages that you didn't know and prophesying, you ought to be saying, is there a step I missed? Because if there is, I'd like that step. That seems to be a cool step, and I want it. <laughs> Lots of people step into that, but allow me to bring some clarity to what's happening here. This is the fourth occasion in the book of Acts that this kind of thing happens. There are multiple occasions throughout the book of Acts in multiple scenarios where people come to know Jesus, and there is absolutely no uh, uh, hint in any way of this kind of thing happening. They come to know Jesus, they, they have the Spirit, and off they go. There's no laying on of hands. There is no praying over them for the Spirit. There is no tongues involved. There is no prophesying involved. There's nothing. There's just coming to Jesus. You're empowered. Go. You can pick hundreds of stories in the book of Acts and it happens that way. There are four stories, on the other hand, that have this exact scenario play out, which is there is a recognition of Christ and a coming to faith in Christ and then seemingly a distinct and separate experience in that moment of the Spirit of God coming with an outward sign that is supernatural so that there can be no doubt that you just received something supernatural. The first occasion happened in Jerusalem to a bunch of Jews, okay? Pentecost, we call it, right? The Spirit of God came down first time. Nobody knew how this was going to work. There was no instruction in the Scriptures on it. It was just Jesus said, when I leave, He's coming, and when He comes, you'll know it. And then He came, and they knew it because it was powerful. They spoke different languages. They didn't know. It was prophecy. It was tongues. It was awesome. And we went, whoa, we got the Holy Spirit. Check. He said we would. We sure did. The second occasion it happened, it happened in Samaria. There was a bunch of Samaritans. They just came to know Jesus. The Jews didn't think the Samaritans would get Jesus because they were the mixed breed and they weren't, they weren't part of God's people, so they didn't, they didn't deserve Jesus. Apparently, they got Jesus, but guess what else happened? They also got the Holy Spirit. And you know how we know? Because there was an occasion, the very first time for the Samaritans, they came to Jesus and, and they laid hands on them. They said, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Oh, wait, wait. The Holy Spirit's not for the Samaritans. And God went, uh, <laughs> stop right there. Watch this. Lay hands on them. Holy Spirit came. Boom. Tongues, prophecy, unbelievable, supernatural. Oh, the Samaritans get the Holy Spirit too. Who knew? Oh my gosh, the Jews get him. The Samaritans get him. You know what the third occasion was? The Gentiles. Oh, the Gentiles for sure don't get the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Gentiles are unclean people. I mean, we could hope that they come to know Jesus, but they're probably not intelligent enough anyways. Well, it turns out they came to know Jesus. And guess what happened? First time the Gentiles experienced the coming of Christ, there was a laying on of hands and come Holy Spirit. Okay, I don't think he's gonna come. It's the Gentiles. Boom, he came. They spoke in tongues, prophesied, and what do we do? Check, Gentiles get the Holy Spirit too. They are the three occasions. Those are the only three occasions we have except for this one. This one's the fourth one. This one was always the one that jumped out at me and I went, what, why God? Why, it was so simple. 
I mean, it was so clear. You weren't trying to tell us what we're supposed to do. You were showing us something. You got the Jews. You got the Samaritans. You got the Gentiles. Why another bunch of Jewish guys on the back end? I mean, now I don't even understand. And then as you look at this passage and you begin to see what's actually happening here, suddenly everything becomes abundantly clear. You see, these guys had just told Paul what? We are of John's baptism. We were baptized by John before he had declared Jesus to be Messiah. So they don't even know who Jesus was. They're like, we never heard of the Holy Spirit. We didn't know who Jesus was. He's like, that, yeah, the John's baptism told you of the one to come, but his name is Jesus. Here's the story. And he said uh, that you're going to get the Holy Spirit, remember? And they're like, remember? Oh, yes. Let's take a look at where this is going. Let's turn back to the book of Luke chapter 3. So in Luke chapter 3, we jump back in time to where John was baptizing before Jesus came to John and John knew him to be the Messiah and he was baptized. So this is pre-Jesus in terms of his ministry and baptism. So John is still baptizing as a preparation. The Messiah is coming at some point. Better get ready. Okay, take a look at what it says here. In chapter 3 of the book of Luke in verse 15, as the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So it says in their hearts all the people were lined up for John's baptism. John's like, prepare for the Messiah. Come repent. And they're all going, he's the the Messiah. He's telling us to prepare because he's the one. And he's trying to get us ready. He must be the one. I mean, look at the power by which he's doing all this. Unbelievable. And John perceives that this is going on by God's power. And look what John says. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right? What is he saying? Get ready. He's coming. So you better you, you don't want to be you don't want to be not ready when he comes because he's coming with his winnowing fork and here's how you'll know it's him. Watch now. Here's how you'll know it's him. You think it's me? I baptized by water. Do you want to know what he's going to do? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is This is John speaking here, and John didn't even know who Jesus was yet. Think about this. It isn't until later on that Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to give you my spirit. You see, what is John doing here? He is prophesying about the Messiah. See, we think of John as a New Testament character because he's in the Gospels, right? But when is John prophesying? Pre-Jesus' ministry. So is John a New Testament prophet or an Old Testament prophet? Well, he's an Old Testament prophet and he's a New Testament prophet. Why? Because he got to say, before he knew Jesus was walking down the road, when he comes, you'll know him. And here's how, just like the Old Testament prophets did, right? Then when Jesus came, he got to say, oh, oh, behold, the Lamb of God. And then after Jesus came, he got to say, I know Jesus. He was baptized, voice of God. This is my son. I was there. Old Testament prophet, transitional prophet, New Testament prophet, this is the privilege of being John the Baptist. Why do you think Jesus didn't say, no greater man will you know than John the Baptist when he was in prison and they were asking about him? Jesus said this guy got to to play a very unique role in a very unique time in history. He got to prophesy like an Old Testament prophet and he got to see it come to fruition like a New Testament person. Wow. 
And where were the guys when they were baptized by John? In the pre-Old Testament season, right? They'd heard about the coming Messiah. They were excited about them. They hadn't heard about Jesus, hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. And so, what does God decide to do, not only for them, but for you and I? He decides to do this. I've showed you the Jews get the Holy Spirit through a supernatural sign. I've showed you the Samaritans get him through a supernatural sign. I've I've showed you the Gentiles get him through a supernatural sign. So there should be no doubt anymore that who gets him? Everybody that knows Jesus gets the Holy Spirit, right? There should be no doubt about that. Now, just to make sure that you don't doubt that ever again, just to make sure you don't get all bent out of shape that some of you might have him and some of you might not, here's the deal. What did John say would be the absolute way that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah? There were many prophecies about how we would know from the Old Testament what was John's. When he comes, he will baptize you not by water, but by the Holy Spirit. So what does God do? As the closing act of this unique moment, he takes a bunch of disciples of John the Baptist and says, you remember what he said when he baptized you? I'm not the Messiah. When he comes, he'll baptize you in the Spirit. Watch this. Watch this. All right, Spirit, it's all you, baby. Boom, supernatural sign. Jesus was right. John was right. He is who he said he was. And from this point forward, many more conversions, many more things. Never again do we see this separation like this. The Holy Spirit comes to those who come to Jesus. That's what we see. The book of Acts is not meant, listen carefully now, the book of Acts is not meant to be prescriptive to us. It's meant to be declarative. Here's the difference. A prescriptive piece of scripture is telling you how to do something. A declarative piece of scripture is telling you what you ought to know about something. You with me? You see the difference? And the book of Acts was written by Luke to Theophilus to say this, I want you to know what happened so that you will not doubt that Jesus is who he said he was and that the gospel is what he said it is and that the gospel's moving like he said it would. I do not want you to doubt about how you come to Jesus. I do not want you to doubt that you get the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to doubt about what your life's going to look like when you have the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is to tell us what we ought to know, not as nearly as much what we ought to do to get these things. Will we learn about things to do through the book of Acts? Of course, whenever you observe truth and there's declaration of truth, you ought to go, oh, well then I ought to take that seriously and ought to live by that. But it is not in its nature prescriptive. Here's how it works. Because we see hundreds of examples of people coming to know Jesus in the book of Acts. And they do not add to the prescription just in case you don't know. You need the Holy Spirit. You would think if they thought that was that important, it would be in every story of every conversion. But it's only in four. The Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the final, final prophecy fulfilled in these 12 men that John had prophesied, you will know he's the Messiah because he will baptize you in the Spirit. And in case you doubt it, it just happened. It just happened. Now, is there prescription in the Scriptures about what we should know about Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our life? Lots of prescription. This is declaration. The prescription now comes in the letters and the documents written by those living in the book of Acts to say what you're seeing, this is what you ought to know about that. 
So Paul writes lots of prescription about what we ought to understand about our salvation, our empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and our future and our life. And this is how he does it. The book of Romans. Uh, there's many examples. I'm, I'm picking one of each example. The book of Romans chapter 10. Paul begins this. He's writing in chapter 10. and he, be, this is, well, he doesn't begin here. This is the prescription that he talks about in our salvation. Listen to this. Chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is prescriptive. Do you see that? It's declarative. It's telling us a truth, but it's also prescriptive. Here's how it works. Here's what you ought to do. Here's what you ought to expect. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. What if you're a Greek? Saved. What if you're a Jew? Saved. Doesn't matter. There's no distinction. You're saved. You're saved. Prescriptive. Now look what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 13, he writes these words. And again, I'm bouncing here. You can follow it in any one of these books. It's prescriptive, but this just gives some great examples. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, listen now, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So that takes us back to Romans chapter 10, right? When you heard the gospel and you believed, look what he says. He says this. When you heard and believed in him, um, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is an incredible statement about what we should expect and what we should know and how we should function in our understanding of God. When you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what happens to you? You are saved. That's what it says here, right? And now he said this. When the word came to you and you believed, that's being saved, he said, you received the Holy Spirit as a seal and a guarantor of your salvation, okay? Did he say, when you believed, you needed then also to receive? No, you see, he said, I'm making a point here. When you believed, something else happened to you. You received the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? This is the crazy part. To empower you. I mean, certainly empowers us, but he didn't say that here, did he? What did he say the Holy Spirit does here? He is the guarantee of our salvation, the seal of our salvation. No Holy Spirit, no salvation. You with me? No Holy Spirit, no salvation. Okay? But what did he say? When you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you have salvation. And he said, and when you got salvation, you also got the Spirit. See, the prescription here is saying, this is how it works. How do we know we got the Spirit? I mean, he's saying it. How do we know? Ah, the book of Acts, remember? Did the Jews get the Spirit? Yep. Did the Samaritans get the Spirit? Yep. Did the Gentiles get the Spirit? Yep. When John said, we will know Jesus as Lord because he will baptize us in the Spirit, did that happen? Yep. Any doubt? 
Any doubt? You see, we have the declaration in the book of Acts of that it's actually happening, and we've got the prescription in the Scripture saying, here's now what's happening to you. You've seen it. You know it. Understand it. Look what James writes. James writes to the entire church as well, and in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, he writes these words. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, listen now, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Wow. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Look at the last verse in this little paragraph, verse 28. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What is James saying? Work for your faith. Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying, if your faith is faith, it will produce good works. If it's producing no good works, whatever you're calling it, it ain't faith, right? So he's saying, if you have real faith, what can you expect to see in your life? A ongoing progression toward a greater compassion and a greater compelling into doing more good on this planet. That's going to be a natural progression for you. Is it going to happen overnight? No. Believe me, you're human. Trust me, I'm human. I know how this rolls. It comes with a fight, but it will happen. So here's what he's saying. How do you know you're saved? Because there's an expression of faith that you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth. When you were saved, Jesus saved your soul. But he didn't just save your soul, he also restored your purpose. How is he restoring your purpose? He fills you with the Holy Spirit to seal your future redemption. So he's not only saving you now, he's preserving you for later. And how does he preserve you despite your humanity? With the seal of the Holy Spirit. And what has he preserved you for? Not only future redemption, but current restored purpose to be an ambassador of Christ. How's he gonna do that? The Holy Spirit's in you. Carry the gospel. How will you know you're carrying the gospel? Because as you look at the progression of your life, you will be drawn into greater and greater compassion and compelled more greatly into a world of good works for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. And the prescription says, the book of Acts was just telling us, you all get the Holy Spirit when you come to Jesus. And because you have him, your future is redeemed, your purpose is restored, and it demonstrates that your soul is in fact rescued. Peter will write to the church, listen to these words. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes these incredible words. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfailing, listen, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Prescriptive. 
Don't worry about your future. If you know Jesus, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, that's going to produce great works. And if you're producing great works, that is demonstrating that you know Jesus. And your salvation by the power of the Spirit has been guarded for your future by God and His power. Through your faith, which is given to you by God, by His power. How do we know? Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, the author and finisher of our faith. Whoop! He authored that too. Crazy. And here we stand. So what does Paul say in, in light of all of this? One more piece of instruction, right? Paul writes these two letters to the church in Corinth. And at the end of the two letters in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, in his conclusive statement of the two letters, he's uh, concluding what he's now written as a massive letter of, of instruction. He concludes this way. I love this. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Listen. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Sounds scary, doesn't it? Sounds scary. See, it sounds like what he's saying is this. Oh my gosh, on a regular basis, you need to examine yourself and check if you still belong to Jesus. Right, that's what it sounds like. So for those of us that have that space in us that wonder constantly every time we say a bad word, oh, oh, do I still belong to Jesus? This feels scary, because it's like, test yourself now. See if you belong. Because you might not, right? But listen to what he says. Watch this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Watch now. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Wow! What an incredible finish to that statement. Why am I telling you to test yourself? To examine yourself? So that you will remember who you are. Do you not know that you have Jesus in you? Have you so forgotten yourself that you're acting crazy? When is it that we forget who we are and start acting crazy? When we forget the gospel. So what have I told you a thousand times? Jesus wants us never to forget, to always remember. That's the sacraments. That's the disciplines of the faith. That's why we're called into fellowship. That's why we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day, to each other every day, to the world every day. Why? Because when you forget who you are, then you will forget yourself and you will act crazy. You don't lose God's love, but you lose the very God-created purpose that you've been given to image God in every circumstance, every relationship, and every resource. So he says, daily examine yourselves and check. And what are you examining for? Have I expressed faith in Jesus? Check. Whew. Okay. Have I seen a progression of good works over my life? Progressively get more. Check. Now, you don't, you don't get to do this. Well, the last six months I've been acting crazy because I, I get it. We all go through some periods, sometimes years where it's a little crazy. But as you look at your life and you go, am I wrestling more with sin? Am I, am I experiencing more pain when I see sin? Am I drawn more deeply into compassion and good works? Yes. Awesome. And do I have the spirit? Book of Acts. Jews get him. Samaritans get him. Gentiles get him. John was right. Check. I have the Holy Spirit. It's been confirmed over and over again. If you know Jesus, you have the Spirit. Okay, I belong to Jesus. Now get up and go and live that way. Now Paul does say this. Look here, I love it. Like a little side note on the back end. Look at this. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. <laughs> I love that. Why does he put that in there? Because he goes, on the off chance that you examine yourself and you go, have I ever expressed faith in Jesus? Do I actually believe he's Lord? No, I don't. Okay, check. 
Do I see a progression of struggle with sin and a more compassionate? No, no, not really. I'm just, I, I'm just, I like who I am as I am. I want anybody to tell me anything to do. I don't really care. I'm going to check. And, and, and do, I, do I sense uh, that because I've come? No. Well, if you find out, you do the test and you go, oh, I don't know Jesus. What should you do? You should get to know Jesus. This is what Paul's saying. So for those of you that know Jesus, examine regularly so you don't forget so that you can actually live for Jesus. And for those of you that don't know Jesus, if you figure out you don't because you do the test and you don't, then get to know Jesus so you can live for Jesus. Why? Because when we live for Christ, we live free because that's what we were created to do. Remember what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia? Listen to this. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Listen to this. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is our privilege. This is our freedom. This is our life. And the book of Acts in this little story is another declaration to us that we can be certain, assured of this fact, that in the new chapter that precedes the old chapter of preparation, in the new chapter that says once Jesus came, how does it work? Here's what's been declared to us in the book of Acts. The Jewish people got the Spirit. The Samaritan people got the Spirit. The Gentile people got the Spirit. And John said that those who get the Spirit, they get Him because they are baptized into Jesus because you will know he is Jesus because he will baptize you with the Spirit. So how do you know you belong to Jesus? Because you get the Spirit. Who gets the Spirit? Everyone who knows Jesus. How do you know you know Jesus? You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. The Spirit of God comes to seal you and you live in the beautiful progressive life of greater and greater good works because your faith is real and that's what real faith does. Man, that is awesome. Let's live that freedom. Let's examine daily so that we remind ourselves of who we are and live in it and live for Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us. This amazing story that once again in the unfolding story of the book of Acts confirms so deeply for us that what you said was true and who you are is true. I mean, John said it. He will know when the Messiah comes because when he comes, he doesn't just baptize in water, he baptizes in the Spirit. Wow, God, that we would get the Spirit as our gift and seal and guarantee and empowerment and mission companion because we know you. That is an extraordinary thing and thank you that you showed us so clearly and supernaturally through the story of the book of Acts that the Jewish people, the Samaritan people, the Gentile people, we all get them when we know you. And that you reminded us through this last story in the book of Acts about receiving the Spirit in this supernatural way. That this is exactly what you said would happen. And look, it's happening. Thank you, God, for the assurance that you give us, not, through the, not only through the declaration of the book of Acts, but through the instruction of the letters that precede it and that come after it. God, may we examine our hearts daily to remind ourselves that you are with us, that you are in us, that you are working through us, and that we are called as children that hold your name as our name now, ambassadors of Christ. 
And may we boldly walk into the circumstances of our day, the relational challenges of our day, the resource challenges of our day, and face them with a clarity of who we are and who we belong to because you have assured us of these things through your incredible word. And then allow us the power by your spirit to live in that truth and to find the joy that transcends circumstance, that doesn't come because of circumstance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.